Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. One of the biggest challenges that physicians face today is negotiating a fair contract. And it's also important that we make sure that our contract addresses the fair supervision of non-physician practitioners if that's going to be part of our job. Today, I am joined by attorney Dennis Hirsch. He's an expert on physician contracts, and he's here to provide us advice on negotiating favorable and fair employment contract agreements. Mr. Hirsch, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. It's good to be here. I read an article that you wrote for Kevin MD, and it was called Hospital Splaining, a Lawyer's Perspective on Condescension in the Medical Field. It just resonated with me so much. So I would love for you to tell our audience about your experience with helping physicians negotiate contracts, some of the challenges that you have faced working with hospitals and other large employers. Sure. Well, I in the article, I mentioned one example, but it happens all the time. Our firm, when we review a contract, we draft a letter on law firm stationery and say, we recommend changing these, you know, this section and this section. And uh, I was on the phone negotiating with a very nice lady from the hospital who gave us some things, but we got to the call section and she said, no, we can't change that. Now, I wasn't asking for the world. I really just had three things. You know, I I thought it should be equitably allocated, first of all, among all eligible providers, which, you know, sometimes there are advantages to having nurse practitioners around. They can do call. I also wanted a reasonable limitation. Now, I think the person was joining a five-person department. So I asked if we could limit call to one to five. And we would have accepted more, honestly, but that seemed like a reasonable starting point. And I also said, you know, there's benchmarks. MGMA, Medical Group Management Association, has benchmarks on excessive call. We'd like to be paid if call is excessive. Well, the nice lady from the hospital just said, no, we can't possibly change that section. Because you see, Dennis, this is a business. And we need to have flexibility. And I'm not sure. I think what she expected me to do was, you know, do a face plan. Said we never knew that. Oh, well, if it's a business, then you know, my silly physician should just do 24/7, you know, 365 call. And I will just explain to her, you know, that at the hospital's a business. And I'm sure she'll now that she understands how healthcare works, you know, presumably she'll be fine with that. Well, that may have been the what she expected, but obviously I said, well, you know, I think we have a problem here and we're not asking for the world to be clear. We're not saying we don't want call, you know, we're willing to take a fair share, but it has to be fair. And we went back and forth. I still, we didn't end up with with what I would call an ideal resolution, but they did agree that it would be equitably allocated. They refused to do a limit, but they did agree to payment for excessive call. So we got some things. But I I think the reason that that drove me to write the article was it was really condescending. I mean, it really was just explaining, you know, you you shouldn't need sleep because don't you understand I'm running a business, you know, and at that point you should say, oh, well, then, you know, it doesn't matter. 
And and I find this all the time, and you can't blame them. I mean, if I'm a hospital administrator, I can't run the MRI 24-7. The MRI has to be down, you know, for routine maintenance. I can't push my union workers because I'll have to pay them overtime. But, you know, I can just keep hammering those physicians. They'll just keep coming back because they're going to care about their patients. You know, I can book them, tell them your your workday is supposed to end at five. I can have six patients in the waiting room at five o'clock, and they're not going to say, no, I'm going home. You know, the physician's going to see them. And, you know, I can give incredible charting, and then I just expect the physician to do that at home, because why should a physician have a life? You know, it's they should just do this charting. And it, literally, the only portion of hospital operations that they can get away with is physicians. You know, nobody else will take that, but you can always just pile on physicians. And a physician will just work until she drops. And when she does, we'll just throw that extra work on the other physicians in the department and they'll do the same thing. You know, it just, there's just not a reason for me as a hospital administrator to say, hey, we should back off the physicians. You know, they'll take whatever we give them. They may complain, but they will always take care of their patients. It's getting worse all the time. I, it, it really is. It didn't used to be this bad. And I think hospital margins tighten. It looks like the CEO might might not get his seven-figure uh, bonus this year. And somebody's got somebody's to fix that. You know? So guess who? And as I said, the ones that I know I can dump it on, and they'll always, you know, just keep, they'll do it whatever we ask because they're looking for, out for the patients. I appreciate that perspective so much because, you know, we say it to ourselves as physicians, but it's so gratifying to hear someone that's not a doctor be able to identify and recognize that. I think we almost get this gaslight situation where we start to wonder, like, is it is it real or are we just crazy? But I think what you've said is so true. It's this idea of the oath and that you first and foremost are responsible to your patients. But as you've mentioned, hospital administrators, they've learned how to take advantage of that. Yeah, they just say it's for your patients, you know. <laughs> oh, aren't you looking out for your patients, you know? So uh, we're just asking another couple of hours, you know, for your patients. But but it isn't. And the the pushback I usually give them is that at some point, quality of care is going to be affected. You cannot have somebody not sleeping, working, you know, 19 hours a day day in and day out and you can't expect that person to give the quality of care that they're they would be capable of you know if they had some rest and relaxation and could recharge once in a while and i think that's usually the most successful argument that i have is like you know obviously we can beat them up obviously as a physician they have no rights but you really do have to worry about quality of care and that's going to start being impacted if we push these people too hard that's the really the response then that you would advise physicians is to try to identify what you know is the absolute maximum or minimum that you have to you know put in restrictions into place to make sure that patients get the right care and then just push back to say the patient care is going to be compromised and that's going to affect your bottom line. Right. And and I don't even know you have to do the maximum because honestly, you don't know. I mean, can you say okay, you're exhausted. If you would have gotten 15 more minutes free time last week, would that have done it? You know, I mean, it, it comes down to you just need to have a reasonable amount, you know, you know, and physicians are, they're human. They, 
they don't like to admit it too much. <laughs> and you don't act like you are a lot of times, you know, but in fact, they're human and they'll break down if you don't. And, and they won't break down maybe spectacularly, but at some point, the quality of care is going to dip. You know, at some point, you're going to be so tired, you're just not going to be as focused on that patient as you would have been, you know, if you weren't just completely burned out. I loved what you said in your article. You wrote, very few other professions are ever required to frequently give up sleep as an expected part of the job. Certainly no other profession is treated with such disdain by their employers. And that was really the crux of your article is this uh, condescension and this attitude why do you think that hospitals are so condescending to physicians other than the fact that they they can be? But what do you think is the reasoning behind it? Well, I, honestly, I do think it's like I've got I have bonuses that I can get for so much profitability. And like I said, I can't push that MRI too hard. I can't push the unionized workers. But there's one area that I can just drive into the ground, and that's the physicians. And some of them may honestly, and not every hospital administrator is a bad person. Not every hospital administrator thinks this way. But when you see CEOs getting seven-figure bonuses, you have to think that maybe the money was a little bit of a, <laughs> a little bit of an incentive for them. And as I said, you can take it out of the physicians all the time. And, and that's the best place. And then, I, I mean, I see things like they come in and say, well, we're going to give you a $5,000 raise. You know, it's like, oh, well, sure. I don't need to sleep then, <laughs> you know, for, for the big bucks, <laughs> you know, that'll just, that'll wipe out my student loans. It's so <laughs> funny because I was great. reading that the average CEO of a nonprofit earns about 150000 but the average CEO of a hospital nonprofit earns 500000 so yeah. there's definitely a lot of money being made off of, you know, in, in the C-suite. What else can doctors do in your experience to protect themselves against adverse situations or, or poor employment contracts in the short term? And also, is there anything that you can think of that might help us in the long term as far as turning the moving the needle a little bit on this trend? Yeah, I think in the short term, I think before you take a position, there are places you can check out like ryhe.org is run by a physician and it, it rates your healthcare employer. And you can anonymously go in there. And I mean, you see things. I was looking the other day and it's something I think one of the head ones was don't even think about it was the name of a hospital. I said, don't even think about it. And and they're out there. There, I, I mean, there are. I review contracts, and it's funny. There's two competing health systems not that far from me, and when one health system gives a contract, I usually don't hear from that physician again. When the other one does, usually in three years, <laughs> they're they're contacting me. He's like, I got to get out of here. My contract's up. I can't stand it anymore. So there are places out there that rate that you can look at. It's tough, but at some point, I really do think. Don't do it for yourself. Do it for your patients and think about they need a well-rested, enthusiastic physician. And what do we do to keep that? You know, is it going to kill you next year if you work 60-hour weeks like you always have? No, it won't kill you. But five years from now, are you going to be as good a physician as you are right now? If you're doing that, and and honestly, no, I don't I don't think you will be. I think you know you not that you don't care just as much, but at some point you you are going to burn out and you aren't going to give the the good care. Do you work with any 
physician-owned hospitals. There's not too many out there nowadays with the Affordable Care Act uh, outlawing that. But have you have you noticed any differences between contracts from physician-owned and, and non? I do. I think generally physician-owned understand what physicians do for for a health system, and I think. You know, everybody says we care about quality of care. I mean, you, you can't be a hospital exec and say, no, we just care about the bottom line. But the thing is, if I went to college and then got an MBA, and now I'm working in a business that happens to do healthcare, I'm going to have a little different perspective than somebody that went to medical school and has been treating patients on the front line and really knows what quality of care is. So yeah, I think physician-owned hospitals are definitely are definitely the way to go. That's definitely something I would like to see addressed uh, to reverse that ban on physician-owned hospitals, especially with, since there's some data showing probably improved outcomes and lower costs. Have you had a lot of experience with helping physicians negotiate contracts when it comes to supervisory arrangements with non-physician practitioners? Yeah, I, I see that a lot. And uh, there's a couple of things you can do. I mean, I've had some that just did a hard line that said, I will not supervise mid-levels because they didn't want, and and maybe I won't, I won't say for my whole career, I won't. But, you know, if I'm coming out of school, my first couple of years as an attending, I've had people say, I just don't want to supervise, you know, let me get my feet on the ground and we can talk about it. More commonly, it's a question of trying to limit the amount, trying to limit your exposure, and honestly, you should be compensated for it. What infuriates me is I see hospitals come in that are paying physicians on productivity and saying, oh, by the way, we want you to supervise three mid-levels. I mean, it's it's crazy, you know? It's So instead of producing, instead of doing WRVUs, I'm going to be looking over, you know, the PA's chart and making sure that no mistakes were made. And at the end of the year, you're going to say, well, you know, your productivity isn't that great. It's kind of below uh, median. Uh, yeah, you know, I wonder why. Because again, I'm not producing WRVUs when I'm looking over charts and answering a quick question. And that's the problem. You know, you don't know what you don't know. So a quick question, hey, what about, <laughs> you know, it, it may not be a quick, maybe a quick question, but not a quick answer, you know? So you think, hey, just, just quickly in the hall. And it turns out to be, well, did you look at this? Did you look at that? Did you look at this? You know? And, and so... To me, that's the biggest thing is if you're on productivity, you absolutely must be compensated for supervising mid-levels. Do you usually recommend that your clients get a flat amount or that they get a percent or how do you recommend that be handled? I prefer a flat amount. Usually it's between $8,000 to say $18,000 a year for each mid-level you supervise. People that are on pure productivity, I have seen a percentage of the mid-levels. So uh, I've seen anywhere from 4 to 10%. So if the mid-level produces uh, 100 WRVUs, the physician supervising them will get anywhere from 4 to 10 uh, WRVUs for that supervision, which makes it you know, a little bit better. Again, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that you can't be 100% focused on your patients when you've got to come in and, you know, answer a quick question or review charts for somebody that doesn't really know what they're doing. So it it's 
certainly one of the big things I try to get is to make it real clear that you are not responsible for the care that that mid-level is providing and that the hospital will indemnify you for that, which isn't a big deal on their part. I mean, they've got malpractice insurance. It's mostly just to just to focus in their head that, hey, you can't put me in charge of this. I've seen contracts that said you will ensure that the mid-levels chart adequately. And I mean, that's, you know, I, I'll agree to say I'll use best efforts. I'll tell them to. But, you know, unless you just stop seeing patients and sit in with them and make sure they're doing their charts correctly, you know, you can't ensure things. So, you know, it's the details I think you got to you got to work on. What about putting in some type of protection where if the physician is not comfortable with the quality of the care being provided, that there could be some kind of uh, way that they can no longer supervise? Do you see anything like that? Rarely, but I have seen it. Usually a hospital will be somewhat reasonable on that. If you come in and say, I'm not comfortable with the quality of care, usually a hospital will listen to that and and you can get some results. But I don't think it'd be a bad thing to put it into a contract. Are you seeing physicians being replaced? Is that a trend that you've observed at all in your practice? Um, not so much in my practice because I review employment agreements, but as a, uh, as a, I, I hate to say geriatric, you know, I don't feel old, but <laughs> I, am, I am old. Uh, it, it used to be you'd go to the emergency room and, you know, it was physicians seeing you. And now more and more it's nurse practitioners and maybe a physician will stick her head in at one point. And I, I mean, to me, it's just scary because nothing wrong with the nurse practitioner. I think they're wonderful people and I'm sure they do a good job for what they do, but you don't know what you don't know. Uh, You know, this ability that you have the ability to collaborate with a physician, that's fine if you know that you need collaboration. But if you don't see an issue, obviously you're not going to collaborate. So yeah, I think it's pretty scary. The more, the more they put the patient care just completely on the shoulders of non-physicians. And as you mentioned, most of the time, it's just coming down to that bottom line and who is the least expensive person. We're definitely pushing back against this and trying to make sure that patient safety is paramount. And one of the ways we're doing that is trying to keep our doctors employed and happy. And I think that's where you really come in and help us out a lot. So talk to us about your book. Oh, it's uh, the final hurdle, a physician's guide to negotiating a fair employment agreement. And I I wrote it because I, I realized that there really wasn't a resource out there. It's not like, you know, I think I can honestly say it's the best book out there on it because it's the only book out there on it. But uh, there, there really wasn't a resource. And, you know, some people like to do it themselves or at least want an overview of what should I be looking for. And that was the purpose of the book, to kind of give you an overview and say, here's the issues you should be concerned with. Here's a possible workaround. And uh, it's sold several thousand copies. So I I, I guess it's helping. <laughs> I don't know. That's fantastic. Can you give us a few pearls from the book? Of course, we'll encourage all of our listeners to get a copy for themselves. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's a few things. Uh, one is I see all the time don't just agree in a dinner. I see all the time they take you out to a dinner and they say, now we all signed a covenant not to compete. So you're okay with that, right? And and without looking at it, you say, oh, well, sure, if everybody else signed it, yeah, I'll do that. And then you get into the contract and it's, you know, you won't 
practice medicine within three states or something, and you go back and say, wait a minute, this is unreasonable. And they say, oh, no, you said that. So I, I think part of it is being a, a little cagey when you're talking to people like not, oh, yes, I agree to that. And even on a salary, you know, unless you have MGMA data at your fingertips to say, well, we're thinking of paying this much. Does that sound good? Well, especially if you're in training, yeah, it sounds really good, uh, <laughs> but you have no idea if that's fair. So, you know, a lot of times say, well, you know, yeah, it sounds like the ballpark, but I think, you know, we'll have to see what the contract says. And I'll try and look for some benchmarks just to satisfy myself. And most people understand that. So it it really is don't agree to a whole lot before you get the contract. I've had that too many times. I've had people you know, I'm negotiating, I'll say the salary's a little low. And the first thing they say is, oh, the physicians agreed to that. And sometimes they've agreed to it in a letter of intent that says it's non-binding. I have, I, I think that's one of the scariest things for me. Physicians sign, see something that says this is non-binding. They say, ah, oh, it's just a detail and they sign it. And, and it is non-binding, but the employer is going to say, you've agreed to that. Whether you legally agreed, as far as the employer is concerned, that's off the table. So they're not going to like to hear, oh, my attorney looked at the MGMA and I see that's 20,000 below median, you know? They're going to say, oh, no, you signed a letter of intent. We, we've we agreed on the salary. So I think letters of intent are something that you really have to be a little more focused on. So don't sign anything until you're sure. And ideally, you've consulted with someone, uh, pr- probably somebody like you, an attorney that can advise. You know, my first employment contract, I didn't even negotiate my salary. I like, you know, like you said, I had just graduated residency and it looked like a lot of money. And I, I remember saying, um, thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like they were doing you a favor. Right? The employer like almost immediately said, oh, you know, we can we can go up about 20,000 on that. Like he actually and I thought to myself, oh, uh, later on, I said, I probably could have got 50,000 more. Yeah. So he was throwing yeah. 20 at me right away. But no, nobody told me. And actually, I did have a lawyer that looked over it, but I don't think that they were even, I think they just assumed I would negotiate that. And they were talking to me about the no compete and other things, but Hmm. everything's negotiable. And would you say that it's pretty common that that first salary is something that they offer you is you can always go up from that generally? Uh, well, generally is the is the key word. Yeah, most people don't come in and say, this is my final offer. Here's Here's the money. I mean, most people have some wiggle room. Even academic institutions have ranges, and they're very rarely going to come in and and offer you the top of the range. I mean, they'll say, no, we have a fixed salary for that position. And they do, but it's not, you know, to the penny. It's within, it's somewhere within a range. So yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. And I think the biggest thing to think about, and it's particularly true when you're coming out of training, but I think it's for other people as well, is you have to realize that when they've made the job offer, they want you. Uh, you know, you didn't get to where you are without being super competitive. You know, you had to be very competitive in college. You had to be very competitive in med school, trying to be the chief resident, always competing. And I think you take that competition in and and you're thinking, oh, I want to make sure I get this. Once they've made a job offer, you are the prize. You know, now you're not competing anymore. They want you. So you have to bear that in mind. And I think so many physicians, like I said, you didn't get to where you where you are without being competitive. But you got to realize, you know, the race is over. Once they give you that offer, they want you. 
Now, not saying you can say I want triple the salary and you know eight eight months vacation or something, and it won't go to the next person. But but they want you, and they've invested a lot of time to pick you. You know, a lot of physician time. They weren't seeing patients and billing for the employer. They were talking to you, so they're pretty invested in this. A recruiter can be like three months of salary if they're paying a recruiter. So they've got a huge amount invested and they want you. And I think a lot of physicians don't realize that. It's like, oh, I got to get right back to them. You know, I got to do this. I, I don't want to look greedy. I don't want to look. And, and you know, you're not. Um, as I said, you're the prize now. You're not competing anymore once that offer is made. And really, it's just about the only time that you do have that advantage, because it seems like once you sign on the dotted line, uh, then the hospital splaining gets way worse in my experience. Usually they're really nice to you before you sign. Yeah. If if they are really hardcore in negotiations, you really have to think about that. Because as you said, that's the nicest they're ever going to be to you. Once you've signed, it's going to be like, read your contract, doctor. <laughs> you know, that's it. <laughs> you know, when it comes to negotiating for women physicians, we know there's still a gender pay gap. And I tend to have this philosophy that I tell women, you know, if you're going to get a, a a salary that they offer you, maybe just assume that that's 30% less than what a man might get. I'm just, I mean, am I crazy on that? Or do you think that's good advice? No, if I hadn't seen a, a study that was done in Maryland, I don't know if you saw that, but it was for something like 2021 and female physicians made something like 30% less than males. This is not, not 1921, 2021, you know, and, and the study people said it was adjusted for full-time, you know, people come back and say, oh, well, some women are part-time and that explains it. It was adjusted for that. And taking that into account, there was that big a gap. So no, I think, I think it's particularly important for women to look at the benchmarks. And if somebody's offering you less than median, there better be an explanation. I mean, what I've told people is, like, if you don't think this position is median quality, why are you hiring her? <laughs> you know? I mean, now, if, is if that, <laughs> are those medians that we you have to buy that from somewhere? Yeah, it's MGMA. Okay. Um, and, it. and is it broken down by location and things like that to really help you? Yeah, it really is a location and employer. Now, now it depends on some sub sub specialties. It you almost have to look at national, but a lot of specialties uh, and even some sub sub specialties. I was just looking at a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon in Pennsylvania employed by a hospital, and there was a database for that. You know, so kind of a sub specialty in Pennsylvania employed by a hospital. That's a database. It doesn't compare to private practice, doesn't compare to New York. So yeah, and it's very hard. If you're getting paid less than that, there really has to be an explanation as to why. Got it. Other than negotiating salary and vacation, which we all think about, is there anything else that doctors should think about negotiating negotiating into their contract? Well, tail coverage, I find, is huge. And sometimes the language is really kind of nebulous. You know, you read it and it says, we will cover you for all claims uh, that occur while you are employed. And are they saying it's occurrence-based? That kind of sounds like occurrence-based, but try to really nail them down. And I usually try to get 
a lot of hospitals will pay for tail, but the ones that don't, you know, I think there are instances in which they should, and I don't care if it's private practice or or what. Like if you die, I think your tail should be paid. If you become disabled, I think your tail should be paid. If they terminate you without cause, I think they should pay your tail. You know, so there's a lot of reasons you can say, look, just in general fairness, I think these are instances in which you should pay the tail. But it, it's funny for me because the same people that'll explain to you that it's a business don't view that as a cost of doing business. You know, that's somehow your problem. Yeah, getting insurance after you leave, that's your problem. And we're going to put that on you. And that that's... I just don't think that's fair. Yeah. And tail is pretty expensive. What is it like two and a half times an annual malpractice premiums? Yeah, generally. And it's, yeah. uh, it's yeah, it can be a lot of money. Um, Definitely. Do you, do you ever see doctors negotiate things like a, a, a shorter schedule, like maybe having a time off during the week to get things done? I think that's a big cause of burnout for a lot of doctors. Like when are you supposed to go to the doctor and the dentist and the bank and things like that? Yeah, I do. And I think even as a full-time physician, the thing that you want to have nailed down is patient contact hours. I mean, I've seen contracts that it was pretty clear that you're going to be seeing patients 40 hours a week. Well, if you're seeing patients 40 hours a week, I don't have to tell you, we're talking 60 maybe hours a week of work, maybe 70, maybe more. And that's not counting call. I mean, that just means doing your administrative stuff and calling the pharmacy and all that stuff, you know, arguing uh, about and calling the insurance company. So I usually try to get 32 patient contact hours a week for a full-time physician. And again, that is still very much a full-time physician. You know, you're going to be working more than 40 hours a week, uh, forgetting call if you are just seeing patients 32. Have you been pretty successful with that? Do most hospitals seem to go along with it? It's getting better. Uh, 36, I get pretty commonly. Uh, sometimes I get 32, sometimes I don't, but I can usually you can get 36 patient contact hours a week, which is better than better than nothing. Absolutely. Uh, At least it gives you a half day that you might be able to have a little bit of time for yourself. Yeah. And again, it's not really going to be for yourself. I mean, no, sure no. spend that half day, you know, charting. And, right. And, uh, you're going to be working. It's just you're not cross, you know, but even cross. Be, being able to just carve off a few hours, you know, just because I don't know when else we're supposed to do those kind of things. Well, it's the idea is you're wasting all of his time sleeping and eating, I think, is the is the problem. Uh, no, I have talked to physicians that say, you know, I get in at uh, eight, I see patients till five, I chart till about seven, I go home, get something to eat, I chart for a couple more hours, I go to sleep and I do it again. You know, that's, that's just life. And it's, but not it's, much of one. Yeah. No, I, I, no. And it's considered full time. <laughs> you right. know? It's crazy. <laughs> is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? I think the biggest thing is to know your worth. And when you're talking to somebody that's in a hospital chair, always remember, and I tell people, you know, I could have been a physician too. There's just really two things that kept me. One is I'm not smart enough. And two is I didn't want to work that hard. But other than that, I could I could do what you do, you know? And that's kind of what they're thinking sitting in the chair. You know, I could do what you do. Just never forget who's the smartest person in the room when you're talking. Uh, you know, I may have the big seat and the uh, big view behind me and, uh, and all that, but just never forget. And, and I usually ask to be addressed uh, as doctor, 
in in fairness, the way my mother raised me, then she would call me Mr. Hirsch, uh, you know, but extra points if you can say, Dr. Bernard. Well, thank you, Dennis. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> kind of to, to get, but it kind of does. I mean, that's the first thing. And you think they're being friendly. Hey, can I call you Rebecca? And it sounds, oh, that sounds nice. But right away now, you and I are, you know, kind of peers now. We're both first name. I think it just has a different impact than just saying, oh, no, I'd prefer Dr. Bernard. You know, if that's okay, I'd prefer Dr. Bernard. I, I just think it helps just the mindset a little bit in the room. You know, we're not two peers. You know, we're not two folks that are both the same. It's like, no, no. <laughs> I, I love a- that. Like, thank okay. you for saying that, you know, especially for women doctors. That's, you know, there's studies on that too, where, you you know, you're sitting on a panel and they go, this is Dr. Smith, Dr. Jones and Dr. Rebecca, <laughs> you know, that, that happens <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, you know, not that you want to make a big deal out of it, but your point that, you know, that name is either a leveling or it's a distinguishing quality. So that's so interesting. No, I think it's important too. And again, I'm not asking, you earned it. <laughs> it's, you know, I'm not saying, hey, you should put me up because I'm a wonderful person. Just that's an honorific that you've earned. It's a reminder. That's so great. Um, Dennis, where are you located? I'm in Middletown, Pennsylvania. It's near Harrisburg. I actually review contracts in all 50 states though. Uh, Fantastic. So. Well, we're definitely going to include your information, your book, and also how to contact you if any of our physicians would like to get some help with their employment contract. It sounds like you've been doing this a long time and you're a huge physician advocate, which I so appreciate. If you would like to learn more about the topic of non-physician practitioners in the healthcare system, please consider getting the book Patients at Risk, which I co-authored, and my new book, Imposter Doctors, Patients at Risk. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about advocating for physician-led care and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners, please join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection, PPP. You can learn more at our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm -hmm.